Our sermon text is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And you can find that on page 568 in the paperback Bibles. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Today we're coming to some of the most famous verses in all of Scripture, right? By grace you have been saved through faith. Now, that's famous for a lot of reasons, and for good reasons, because salvation by faith, salvation by grace, is the heart of the gospel. But the problem whenever we come to verses like this that are so familiar is that there is a risk they might kind of pass over us, that they might become commonplace, that we might miss uh, how, how revolutionary they are. And that's exactly what this is. I mean, these verses are radical. What Paul is trying to communicate to us here is, is amazing. He wants us to recognize that the message of the gospel flips the whole world upside down. He wants us to see that the message of the gospel flies in the face of all of our human instincts, that it transforms our lives from the inside out, and so as we look at this today, I want us to try to recover a little bit of that. I want us to try to recover a little bit of that amazement, a little bit of that awe that comes when we consider God's grace. Especially when we consider God's grace and the consequences that God's grace has in our lives. And so that's where I want us to go this morning. I want us just to do three simple things. I want us to talk about the meaning of grace, and then I want us to talk about the way that grace destroys our boasting. And then finally, I want us to talk about the power of grace to transform our lives. So the meaning of grace, the way that grace transforms our boasting, and then the power of grace to transform our lives. Uh, so grace, just generally, it, this concept uh, is, is fundamental to who we are as Christians. The idea of grace is, is something we need to understand. Whether you have been a Christian for as long as you can possibly remember, or if this is your very first Sunday at a church in a really long time, we need to get our minds around the concept of grace. It's important. And because it's important, there are lots of ways to describe it. There are lots of illustrations that people have used to explain it. Uh, one of the ways I've commonly heard is the distinction between mercy and grace, right? That mercy is not getting the things we deserve, but grace is getting the things we don't deserve. Have you heard that before? I think that's a somewhat helpful way to think about it because uh, it's certainly the case. Grace is getting things we don't deserve. And, and what Jesus has given us, we definitely don't deserve, right? No one deserves to be forgiven of their sins and given favor with God. Nobody deserves that. But what Paul has been explaining in Ephesians so far, and especially what he's been explaining in this paragraph in Ephesians chapter 2, is something even more extreme than that. The grace of God is not simply something we don't deserve. 
It's not simply undeserved favor or unmerited favor. It's not like uh, you know, winning the lottery or something, getting something that you did nothing to deserve. It, it is what you might think of as, uh, instead of unmerited favor, it's demerited favor. It is getting the opposite of what we deserve. It's what Stephen preached on last week at the beginning of this passage when Paul tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were following the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. What Paul says in in the beginning of this paragraph is that we have done everything we could to get the opposite of grace. We have done everything that we can to make God angry with us. We've done more than enough to be punished. We have dismissed God. We have chosen to walk in our own intuition instead of in His ways. We have refused to bow down to God, but instead we gladly bow down to and serve lesser things, like our jobs or our sex life or our pursuit of pleasure. We have, at a core level, refused to worship Him, but instead we spend all of our time and all of our energy in the pursuit of pleasure, in the pursuit of entertainment, in the pursuit of distraction. What Paul wants us to recognize is that we have spit in the face of God who's created all things and said, no thanks. I can do this without you. So, in granting our salvation, God is not simply giving us what we don't deserve. He's giving the opposite of what we deserve. The grace of the gospel is not simply that God has decided not to press charges against us. It is that he has taken us off of death row and given us his penthouse suite on Boylston Street, right? He has taken us out of the dungeon and he has given us the room with the view. It's not simply that he has given us access to the riches of his kingdom, but it's as if we had lost all of our money to loan sharks and bookies and people were coming after us trying to break our knees and he grabbed us up and he paid our debt And then he changed credit scores with us. Paul says that he has taken us who were dead, who were incapable of changing our ways, who were committed to living a life apart from him, and he put his spirit in us. Ephesians 2.5 says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. That's way more than getting what you don't deserve. The grace of God in our salvation is so great that we almost need a different word for it. There is no way for us to fully grasp this idea. There is no way for us to get our minds around how different our state is, apart from God, apart from God's grace, and within God's grace. And that's why when Paul describes it for us here, he goes even further. He says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. 
What he's trying to say there is that God's grace is bigger than just taking the same people and moving them from one status to another status. He's saying that God's grace is even bigger than taking a dead person and making them alive again. It is like creating us all over again. If you are in Christ, that is what God has done for you. If you are in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And if you aren't in Christ, this is what he offers you. A new life. A new life to replace the one that you have ruined. So, if that's the state of things, if that is what God's grace means, then of course, salvation is something we could never expect to earn. Of course, salvation, there's nothing we could possibly do to deserve it. There are no amount of good deeds that we could perform to win it. And yet, so often we tend to, to think of faith like we think of going to an arcade. You know, Chuck E. Cheese or something like that. You, you go and you, you play the games, and if you do well, you get tickets, and if you get enough tickets, you can win the prizes, you know, 25 tickets. And you get a bouncy ball, 25,000 tickets, and you can get that remote control car. The reason I was, I'm thinking about that is because last weekend, I took Ambrose to the worst arcade ever in New Bedford. It was, it was a disaster. We went in there. It, you know, it took quarters. It didn't even do the token thing. And almost every machine was broken. And so we're playing these games, and, and we're doing as best I assume you can, and no tickets come out. None of the machines are able to give out tickets, and they still have the prizes there, but there's just no way to win them. And as I was thinking about this ridiculous situation, I'm like, this is, this is our state. This is what we are like. We, we, can, we can try our best, but the truth is, at the end of the day, there's no performance that we can give that will ever get us, that will ever earn our way, will ever buy us that ticket into heaven. We have broken the machines. They don't work anymore. There's no way for us to earn a good standing before God. No matter how well we perform, it's not possible. Ever. By grace, we have been saved. Through faith. Our salvation is all about what God has done in sending Jesus and not about what you have done. It's about what God has done by working faith in us when we were dead and distant and not looking for Him. Grace is a gift of God that is given in spite of you. And that means grace must destroy our boasting. That's the second thing that Paul is trying to show us here in this passage. Paul wants us to see the way that grace has to destroy our boasting. Verse 8, he goes on and says, This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. This is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If we are saved by grace, if our salvation is not about earning points, but about making dead souls alive again, 
Well then, think about that. That means that the true sign of faith is, is not about some kind of performance. The true sign of a faithful person is not that they have achieved some level of moral perfection, but instead it is that they refuse to justify themselves based on their achievements. The true sign of faith is not that someone has achieved some moral perfection, but it is that they refuse to justify themselves based on their achievements. The Christian life is a life that is free of boasting in our works. And that means we have a problem. We have a big problem. Because boasting is fundamental to who we are in a fallen world. Ever since that very first moment in the garden when God approached Adam and he said, what have you done? And instead of Adam saying, I ate the fruit, he said, that woman that you gave me. Ever since that moment, we have tried to declare our goodness not based on God's standards of perfection or holiness, but based on what makes us better than someone else. In that moment in the garden, Adam didn't try to declare himself innocent. He just said, I'm not as guilty as she is. And maybe more seriously, I'm not as guilty as you are for giving her to me. And we haven't changed a bit since then. If you ask most people in the world whether they're good, they're going to tell you yes. Now, they might be humble about it. right? They might, they might arrive at that conclusion slowly. But in the end, they're going to tell you yes. And, and the way they're going to define that goodness is almost always going to be relative to someone else. It's going to be about the bad things that other people do. Well, I've never done X, Y, or Z. You know, I've never murdered anybody. I'm not Hitler. It's, 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 it'll be based on the, the good things that they do that other people don't, right? Well, you know, I, I floss daily, and I love my mama, and I, I volunteer a lot at places. Most people don't do those things. And now... If you're a Christian here, you know, of course, those kinds of things, they don't matter. They're useless for our salvation. If, if what we deserve is death and what we really need is a new life, then of course those little checklists of bad things and good things mean nothing. We've already said that. We just talked about that. But you need to remember, Paul is writing to Christians here. This is a letter that Paul has written to the church, to people who are supposed to know this stuff already. So why does he have to say it this way? Why does he have to keep saying this very redundant thing? He says, by grace, not by works, so that no one can boast. I mean, isn't that the same exact thing? By grace, not by works, so that no one can boast. Why does he have to repeat it? Why does he need to clarify it? Why does he need to hammer this message into us? Well, it's because boasting is so deeply ingrained in us. It's because boasting is so core to our sin nature that, that oftentimes, even after we profess faith and call ourselves Christians, this way of thinking just carries right on into the Christian life. This way of acting, this way of boasting, carries right on into the church. Boasting is a hard habit to shed. 
And unless we identify it, unless we uproot it, it will be in our lives inhibiting the power of the gospel. Because at the end of the day, what is boasting? Is it not just pointing out the things we really trust in? Is it not just highlighting the things that give us a sense of confidence, that give us a sense of of control, that give us an advantage over somebody else? When you think about boasting, who do you think about? I mean, I think the Pharisees in the New Testament, I think the Pharisees in the Gospel are a pretty easy target to pick on. People who boasted in their religious practices, people who boasted in in their religion, people who thought that they were secure because of all the rules that they kept. Do you remember that parable that Jesus told about the Pharisee who said, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You know, that's what it means to boast in our our religion. That's what it means to boast in our abilities. And most of us, I think when we hear that example, we, we don't relate to that guy. We hear that example and we say, man, I hate people like that. That guy's terrible. But you know, we, we do this stuff all the time. We are not much different than that Pharisee in that story. We, just like him, have a faith that is based in our own effort and not in the grace of God. And you might not put it like that Pharisee did. You might not phrase it just like that in your prayers, but anytime you say to yourself or anytime you say to God, anytime you believe that God loves you because of X, you are boasting in your works. Anytime you say, God loves me because, well, I'm spiritually mature. Anytime you say, God loves me because I have made some major sacrifices for him. I have really followed him faithfully. Or if you say, well, God loves me because I am not self-righteous. And I am not judgmental. Not like those other Christians. We boast just like him. And you know, if you're not boasting positively, there is actually a reverse side to this too. There is another way, maybe a more deceptive way that we boast in our works. It might sound different, but this is honestly just the mirror image. It's the exact same thing. Rather than proclaiming that God loves you because of X, A lot of Christians find themselves in a place where they say, well, God doesn't love me because of X. God doesn't love me because I'm not as good as I was supposed to be by now. God doesn't love me because, well, I'm still struggling with this same old sin. I'm not good enough. God doesn't love me because I am judgmental and I'm anxious. And I'm always getting angry. God doesn't love me because I'm not doing enough for Him. Does that sound familiar to anybody? See, if you think that way, if you live that way, if you find your relationship with God as one that is defined by groveling and constant guilt, if you find yourself 
unwilling to come to God in the first place, unwilling to, to ask for salvation because you think He couldn't possibly welcome you. You're boasting. Whether you are secure in the works and the things you've done, or you are insecure in the works and the things you've done, in both cases, you are boasting in yourself. In both cases, you are saying, I am not saved by grace alone through faith, but I am saved on account of what I have done or not done. And folks, that's not the gospel. No, that's the same thing that Chad was telling us about a few weeks ago. That is that orphan mentality that's rearing its head. It's that thought that God's love, that His grace and mercy cannot be counted on. His grace and mercy cannot be relied upon, and so we need to work. God doesn't save people because of what they have to offer Him. God didn't save you because of some hidden potential He saw in you and planned to demand from you later. And so when Paul's trying to explain this to the Corinthians, here's how he puts it. He says, think about yourself for a second. Think about who you are. He says, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What Paul is saying there is that he, God saves people who have nothing to offer. God saves people who have nothing to offer purely by His grace in order to display His glory to the world. And if that's the case, well, that means that faith and boasting are the opposite of each other. It means that faith is the refusal to boast in anything that we have done. Faith comes at that moment when God opens our eyes to see this. To see that the only thing we could ever boast in is His power alone to save us miserable, wretched, lowly, undeserving sinners. Faith is the knowledge that we stand before God with nothing to offer of any value. That we are empty-handed that we have nothing to say for ourselves. And it's in that state of uselessness and lowliness that he says to us, that he calls to us. And in Christ, he names us sons and daughters. In Christ, he gives us all things. And when you experience that, when you know that's who you are, and God has chosen you nonetheless, it shuts your mouth. Grace destroys our ability to boast. 
But not only that, grace has the power to transform our lives. Verses 8 and 9 are so spectacular. They are so important and central to our faith. I wouldn't blame you for only hearing them and not hearing anything he says in verse 10. But Paul doesn't stop with 8 and 9. He goes on. In verse 10 he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Have you ever watched the TV show, The Biggest Loser? Anybody see that? The weight loss show? The person goes on like a crazy extreme diet. The show lasts like an hour. Really what the show is, it's, it's an hour buildup to a before and after picture. <laughs> and you know, it's a really popular show. People like watching that show. They like the anticipation of what this person is going to look like after their transformation, after this enormous weight loss. And you know, I'll admit, I've, I've watched the show before. Because we want to see that. We want to see what's changed. We want to see the transformation this person has gone through. And Paul is doing this in our text. He is painting a picture of before and after. The whole purpose of, of this paragraph is to show us what our life is like before salvation by grace and what our life is like after salvation by grace. And so he starts off by saying, before, you walked in trespasses. You walked in sin. You were under the wrath of God. And he closes by saying, now, you walk in good works. Hey, Chad, the pizza guy is in the parking lot texting me on my tablet right now. <laughs> I don't know what else to do. I've got to tell somebody. What, what are we talking about? Um, so he says, before you were this way, and now afterwards, you are this other way. You walk in good works. And you might be asking, well, wait a second. How can that be the conclusion? Didn't you just spend this whole time telling me that good works don't count? How can the big finale be, now you get to go do good works? But that's, that's not exactly the message. The point that Paul is making, the point he's been trying to make, is that apart from God... All of our works, no matter how beneficial they might be to society, no matter how benevolent our motives might be, apart from God, all of our works are dead and lifeless. There's no such thing as karma. There is no such thing as this divine accounting system keeping track of the good things that you've done. Apart from God, there are no good works. But in Christ, something amazing has happened. In Christ, something amazing has changed. He says, we have been recreated as God's workmanship. The gospel message is that on the cross, Christ paid the penalty for our boasting. On the cross, Christ paid the penalty for our sin. He took the full weight of God's wrath and judgment, and he conquered sin. Through his death, through his resurrection, he has given us his own perfect record. Christ has given us his own perfect standing before God. 
In other words, Christ was destroyed so that we could be recreated. And that means there is this new reality. There is this new promise in the Gospel that everyone who comes to Him, everyone who repents of their boasting, everyone who repents of their self-trust will receive a new life. They will receive Christ's life for their own. They will receive His everlasting favor in the presence of God. We receive His Spirit. He puts His Spirit in us, and it is a Spirit that testifies the truth of this Gospel to our hearts. You don't have to earn this. You can't earn this. You're mine. And that power, as it works itself out in our lives, it changes us. When His Spirit is in us, it produces new desires. Not to earn God's favor, but to be near God. To do what delights God because God is delighted in you. And so when Paul closes with this statement, it's not a, a command. He's not telling us, now you have to go and do good works. No, he's stating the facts. He's saying, here's how you know all of this stuff I'm saying is true. Look at your own life. Look at yourself. You are a new creation. You have been created for good works. You used to be dead, but now you're alive. Now His Spirit is in you, and the world can tell the difference by the way it's changing you. You used to walk in sin. And now, more and more, you are walking in His power and in holiness. Paul is telling us that you cannot encounter Jesus without being changed. Now, sometimes that's a slow change. Always, it is a hard change. But the Spirit of God will transform your life. And friends, this is a promise for you. This is a promise for me. This is a promise for everyone who comes. Christ saves us by grace through faith. Christ makes us holy by grace through faith. And so today, I, I want to invite you to come. I want to invite you to come to Him again, and I want to invite you to believe the good news. I want to invite you to come in repentance over your works. I want to invite you to come in sorrow over your boasting and over your insecurity. I want to invite you to come to this table in a moment and receive this meal with joy. This salvation that is a gift of God, freely given, not by works, so that no one can boast. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this message of truth. And we're grateful for our salvation that is not dependent upon ourselves. We know that if it were up to us, we would be lost forever. And in fact, we were. But Lord, You sent us Your Son. And we pray, Father, now that Your Spirit would move in our hearts and testify this truth to us. We pray in Christ's name.